Hello, Merrick Egbert from the Four Autism Podcast here. What we would like to present to you all through this broadcast is our very first special episode titled The Story of Autism, which is centered around our interview with John Donvan and Karen Zucker about their documentary in a different key, The Story of Autism, and so much more. We were so delighted to have a duo so knowledgeable about the subject that our interview became more like a conversation. However, as usual, it would be good to share a few details, especially since we are ending Autism Awareness Month with this broadcast. For any additional information, please check our social media. We have a Facebook page for ourselves and our We Are Foodies program, part of our wonderful work experience program. Follow us on Instagram and be sure to, to subscribe to us on YouTube. Also be sure to go through our show notes for even more details. The first thing I would like to talk about is that our golf challenge series had begun for 2021 at the Tiburon Golf Club on April 20th, which is located in Naples, Florida. We repeated our success there on April 26th at the Loxahatchee Club in Jupiter, Florida, our home base, with special appearance by the We Are Foodies crew. As per the month, they were also handing out fact cards about employment for individuals with autism spectrum disorder. The other big story of April was this one. We had quite a good time on Saturday, April 24th, celebrating our foundation's 5K Roots and Ruts walk slash run for Autism Awareness Month. Our Sea of Possibilities booth was there, <clears throat> staffed by our wonderful ADT Adult Aid Training Program crowd with great artwork designed by the members of the program. Our We Are Foodies group was there with the new crew to hand out water bottles and food for the hungry athletes. And I was there to help volunteer to hand out medals to everyone who crossed the finish line. So many of our coworkers came to volunteer and help out. And while I'm not up to date on our virtual registrants, we had a lot of people participate live. Thanks to AccuChip Timing, Ray the DJ, and everyone else who helped make this event, whether big or small, a reality. Otherwise, through a number of marketing campaigns, including my very own 30 quotes from 30 people with autism, the greater affinity for our ADT participants, adult day training program participants with the town of Green Acres and our very own COO, Dr. Marlene Satello, and one of our distinguished board members, Dr. Michael Alessandri, being interviewed in the prestigious Forbes magazine about employment, we have found all kinds of ways to celebrate the greatness of Autism Awareness Month. Now, you've all waited long enough. Before we start the interview, here is a piece of big news for all four Autism Podcast fans. One of our advisory board members, Jim Hogan, who serves in a high position for Google, started up an internationally focused website called Go Autism which lists resources for employees with autism at the major tech firm with a few of his co-worker with a few of his co-workers which is doing very well. In fact, for World Autism Awareness Day April 2nd, they had an event which had Google employees from 46 countries participate. Well, sit down while you are hearing this if you haven't already, but our four autism podcast is listed there thanks to Mr. Hogan. Our reactions Google the term ecstatic. One. So 
This is going to be a very big episode today. With us, we have two reputable ABC journalists, John Donvan and Karen Zucker, who have been so dramatically impacted by autism that they have become experts in the field. In 2017, they wrote the Pulitzer Prize finalist in a different key, The Story of Autism, a book that reads like an autism almanac in which everyone who has a slight relationship to this disorder should read. It was through articles they wrote prior and excerpts from the book when I was able to write my three-part series on the origins of the autism diagnosis and the history since. While the book is itself fantastic, you can only do so much with one. Two years ago, Mr. Donvin and Mrs. Zucker came to the Elstra Autism Foundation's Autism at Work Summit to show us their trailer of a documentary being made based on their book. Now we could actually see some of the people addressed in their pages, including client number one, Donald Gray Triplett, the first person diagnosed with autism. It also emphasizes issues like equity and diagnosis and awareness, how law enforcement can do better with people with autism, mental health, and bullying. This year, an advisory board member who appears at the end of the film, Paul Morris, alerted the foundation to the finished product of the film. After reading the book, so much of the film fascinated me and made me wish that we all had a little Donald Gray triplet in our lives. Mm. Because their impact in spreading awareness through their news projects, their book and movie, I decided to have both of them on for our interview for April for Autism Awareness Month. As usual, Nate will handle the first three questions and I will handle the other three. First, thank you both for the important and entertaining work that you're doing for the field of autism. It's really a pleasure to speak with you today. So I was motivated to begin working in autism research by a close friend I had growing up in the Chicago area who was a very good basketball player and also happened to be autistic. Could you please speak to our audience about what inspired you to embark on this exceptional project in a different key? Well, uh, John, okay, if I go first? Sure. Um, well, first, I want to say thank you for having us a part of the ELS Foundation um, Autism Talk uh, for Autism Awareness Month, because um, you all do extraordinary work there. Um, so I wanted to sort of get that on the record. And um, I think like many of us who are doing things to change the world for people who have autism, um, it, it usually starts with a, a real a depth of understanding. And often that comes from um, being connected to somebody who has autism. And uh, I have a, a 27 year old son who has autism. And about uh, 25 years ago, I asked John Donvan who was a correspondent at ABC News while I was a producer um, to come on board with me and try to um, educate the world and, and make the, the world a better place for people with autism. Um, John has his own connections as well, but um, I think has gone above and beyond, um, you know, what his friend asked a long time ago. And um, I think what Karen's talking about is that um, my, my connection is through my wife's brother. My wife grew up in Israel and her brother, who's now in his early 50s, was diagnosed with autism in the very late 1960s or early 1970s, which was a really a different time for people on the spectrum in the way that they were treated and understood. And um, 
his mom, who's my mother-in-law, set out to change the world in Israel for people on the spectrum and give them a real place in the world, which they were not getting at that point. And she uh, began to open schools to educate people on the spectrum and help integrate them into the community. So when Karen asked me to partner with her on reporting on autism, almost you know, more than 20 years ago now, uh, I was really, really happy to do it. And that's really how it all started for both of us. That's amazing. Yeah. Mind if I interject a little bit? So while reading the book and going through the movie, I noticed that there is little to very little of a mention of your brother-in-law, Mr. Donvin. Um, is there a way that anyone can be able to know more about him, if that's okay? About my brother-in-law? Sure. Um, he's not in the book because the book really was focused on stories that, that were kind of more central to the history of how things changed and we didn't focus on Israel. At and, one time and actually- and, and also my son wasn't in the book as well. But he's in the movie, yeah. But, um, but um, at one time actually we were going to write about Israel and a lot of other countries, but we just didn't have room in the book to, to do very much about other countries outside of the United Kingdom. Um, so, so I'll tell you, his name is Dwal, D-R-O-R, Mishuri. And he's about 53 years old, I think. And um, he, um, he, he lives in a community with other people on the spectrum where he gets a lot of support. He's somebody who needs support kind of 24 hours a day. Um, he has challenges using language, but you know he has a little bit of language. And uh, he also can play the piano. And he's a very, very interesting painter. I think that's the main means of his expression is painting pictures. Um, so I, I don't see him very often because he's in Israel and especially the last few years, but I see him every, every year or so or every few years. And um, he was kind of the first, really the first autistic person that I kind of really got to know. Um, and Karen's son, I would say, is one of the second, one of the other people early in that group. But now I know a lot more people. Um, I, I want to add one other thing to that, which is um, John's mother-in-law, um, Edna Mashori, was the founder uh, among, uh, along with a number of other parents of the, the first program for uh, people with autism in Israel. And, and that was before anything was even started in this country. That's really interesting to hear. Um, perhaps there's a way that, you know, in some way, that maybe in like a box set or sometime in the future, we could be able to see uh, your brother-in-law's uh, painting or artwork. That's a really good idea. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. And, and um, I know that there have been times when it's been put on exhibit, but I don't think there's anything available on the internet right now. There has been in the past. Very cool. well, I don't mean to... Uh, toot our own horn, but we do have a virtual gallery at the Ells Foundation, so. Oh, all right. I'll, we're always I'll... looking for new artists with autism to exhibit. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll set up a lunch, certainly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, very interesting to hear, you know, kind of some of the driving forces behind getting you all involved in this field. Um, 
So in the book and the documentary, you speak a lot about the importance of the supportive community for the development of individuals with autism, and particularly in the context of Donald Triplett and the town of Forest, Mississippi. So could you talk a little bit about what features made that community stand out and how they treated Donald? And is there any way we could bottle that up and try to replicate it in other communities? You know, we say that all the time. Um, you know, if we could, if we could bottle up, if we could bottle up what they have and uh, what they've done in, in forest, um, the world would be a better place. Um, you know, I would say that some of those things um, were to, some of the things that happened to Donald in his community um, were because the community was just naturally accepting and loving of him. And they, they didn't, they didn't know that he had autism and they didn't care that he had autism, but he also had a lot of things going for him that um, not everybody in society has. You know, he had a, a, a very wealthy family who owned the bank um, and they were, um, they were well known and well thought of. So we also think that um, Donald had the benefit of having um, the support of the community in terms of, of prestige. Um, it was a, in a different time in history. Um, uh, the community was, um, well, John, why don't you take it from there? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we haven't really spelled it out, but Donald was really, really, really accepted in his community. Um, it's a small town, about 3,500 people at that time. I think it's closer to 5,000 now. <clears throat> and um, for most of his life, um, his community has really just uh, not just accepted him, they've, they've appreciated him and they've protected him. And um, as a result, Donald got a chance to, at, a, at an era when people like him were actually put away in institutions, he was not in an institution. He was as a very little boy, but then his parents insisted on taking him home and making him part of the community. And he, he has friends and a life and activities. And, um, and you know, it, it's, it's, it's out of, it's out of, people are, are accepting him with, of him out of appreciation for who he is. They just think of him as one of the folks in town. And he's got some behaviors that are different and nobody cares. Um, they, they really just embrace him. And as Karen was saying, well, why did that happen there when it didn't happen in so many other places? And part of it, part of it is just Donald, who Donald is. And he, he he's really charming, lovely, sweet guy. And so he's very likable. But also um, it's a small town where everybody got to know everybody. It's pretty, it was pretty safe place. Um, people watched out for each other. And so they watched out for him. And also there were, he got to go to school as a little boy in a time when people on the spectrum were not even allowed to go to public school and they all just got to know him then. And so they grew up with him. So 85 years later, they just, they're really accustomed to the idea that Donald's just like everybody else. And um, even though they know that he's different from everybody else, but he's not different in ways that really matter. Well, <clears throat> so I was, uh, very sad to actually uh, see at the very end of the movie that um, I don't know if this is spoiling anything, but the, uh, but that his brother passed on, 
And when I was watching the movie, I really, really got a sense that he was a gentleman and that he was reciprocal. People loved him. He loved them back. He was an absolutely gregarious person. And when I was watching the film, one thing that did strike me and also kind of in the book was that if people are so appreciative of him in that town of forest, my thought wasn't about how can we export that uh, all over the country. It was more about how we can be able, how the people of Forest will preserve his legacy and his memory. Like, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, wouldn't it be nice if they made something like a Don's place or a Donald place, like a sanctuary, you know, like maybe like a historical site uh, to find out about the history of the autism diagnosis maybe some kind of senior citizen's home, I don't know, for people with autism, a golf course, and the street name would be like a special number that he has. And I was just thinking about that over and over again, that yes, it would be great if it was replicated, but if they feel so appreciative of him, once he's gone or something like that, they really have to put their minds together to figure out, you know, that that they should export it in a way that is also appreciated by others, but they should draw more and more attention towards Forrest for what they've done for the life of this one individual. Yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're really right about the idea that there should be, and we hope that the book and the movie stand as some legacy. So as you say, at the end of the movie, we, we put up on screen that, that uh, Donald's brother has passed away, Oliver, who was actually younger. They're pretty close in years, but Oliver was younger. And, and we've been aware almost since we first met Donald that he was already a senior citizen and that, you know, we never knew, is he going to be there next year or not? And um, there was a time when we were starting to make the movie where we thought he was going to pass away. He was very sick and he was in the hospital and we're, and we're glad that he didn't. So I, I want to say one thing about his brother who did die is that his brother Oliver was really, really helpful to us in getting the film made. And the other one, the, your idea about Donald being sort of, you know, always standing for the right thing, even later, you know, when, once he's gone, is there a way to memorialize him? I think Karen and I hope the movie will do that, will be that kind of memorial, that the story will always live on, uh, even if, of course, none of us can, so Donald can't either. Well, I think you guys did a great job of reflecting that in the movie just uh seeing you know the trip taken to forest and uh it the impression i got was just that it was it was kind of a there was some magic there between the town and donald absolutely i mean we we say we've told you all these other things but it still it still exists today i mean and it did you know in 2007 when we first met him and we we, we, we found him and we didn't just want to show up on his doorstep as two journalists. We, we reached out to um, um, Sid Salter, actually, who is, uh, was a, a newspaper man from Forrest at the time, a uh, really, really fine human being, and kind of checked in with him to say, listen, we want to come down and meet Donald, but we don't want to just show up. And, um, and Sid said, well, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll introduce you to Donald, but you know, if you, if you mess with him in any way, we'll, we'll hunt you down and we'll, we'll get you. So 
you know, that'd be <laughs> nice. And, uh, and they meant it. I mean, that's how they felt. That, that was our first indication actually of the kind of community he came from. Before we even arrived, we knew that they protected him and watched out for him. Merrick and I have each other's backs like that too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can completely say that. I mean, you know, the fact that Donald would go over to the bank and say hello to everyone, be sharp as a tack at that age. I'm just thinking to myself, I wish that I could be somewhat like him when I get older. <laughs> yeah, he is sharp as a tack. That's for sure. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting is that, you know, we've, we, we've, um, Nate, you used the word magic about Forrest and we've used it. But when you talk to the people in Forrest, <clears throat> and we've tried a lot of times saying, so why were you so nice to Donald? What happened in this town? They have no, they have no idea. They, they don't think that what they did is anything special. It was just kind of, it's kind of, it was sort of natural. It was the way they were. So we, we don't have anybody in the movie explaining clearly why they were so nice to Donald because it's it, it's not anything they've even really thought about before they just did it well you get a look at donald and you see someone with no malice in his heart no oh, anger yeah. no hatred nothing like that you get someone who is very nice to anyone he meets and he may not show it 100 percent, but you get a feeling that inside beats a very big heart yeah for sure a great point. So moving on to my, my last question here. So there are many parents affiliated with the Els for Autism Foundation who are incredible activists, uh, not only for their, their child, but the autism community at large. Um, I know you highlighted some, some really great activists uh, and advocates um, throughout the the book and the documentary. Could you speak uh, a little bit of, about a few of them for us? Well, um, the one I would think I would speak about first is um, a woman named Ruth Sullivan. And back in 19, the 1960s, she was living in Louisiana uh, and then she moved to upstate New York. And she was one of the two people who founded the Autism Society of America, which is still going today. But at that time, there was no other autism organization, which is hard to believe. I was online the other day looking up the names of autism organizations, and there are hundreds. That time, there were zero. And she was trying to get parents together to help their kids, you know, get basically go to school. That was her main thing. She wanted to have some sort of education option for kids. And so she and another person started the autism organization literally by kind of calling their friends and calling and calling other people. And she was very, very smart about how to uh, influence legislatures and how to influence the media. And it was an enormous amount of work. It became her life, really. And she, she ended up going to uh, back to school, I believe in getting a, a degree in psychology. And in fact, uh, today she lives in, um, in West Virginia uh, and she's retired now. She's in her probably late nineties, but she's still with us. But she, wow. we, we wanted to make it clear that there was a generation of parents who, who created a world that the parents of today are living in, who made it so much better. And I say that knowing that a lot of parents face a lot of struggle but it was way more difficult 
50, 60 years ago. And it's people like Ruth Sullivan who spent decades changing the world. And the reason we wanna tell that story about the past is because the people, also the self-advocates who are trying to change the world today. We, we want the book to say, keep going because success is possible. That's a great- you know, The other thing the, the, in terms of you know, advocates, it, it, was, it was much harder to be you know, an advocate you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, um, doctors and psychiatrists and you know the the sort of pillars of the community told parents to put their kids away and get, get on with their lives and you know society said well we don't need to educate these kids um, you know they're uneducable and so people don't realize how far we've come um, and and so today we have new battles but without without the advocates of the past we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be having this conversation because most people with autism were you know, you know, put away uh, in an institution and never came out for the rest of their lives. Very interesting. And we've come a long way. I mean, there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to autism acceptance, but like you guys are saying 30, 40 years ago, it's, it probably took a lot more courage to really stand out and, and advocate for autism. So I'm, I'm happy you brought up some of the, the people who did that um, earlier on. That's why we call it a, a love story because, you know, there are, there are of course professionals in the field um, who are really motivated and, and, and good people with great hearts and a, a willing, a desire to, to make the world a better place. But we really feel like the engine, at least in the 60s and the 70s, the engine of change was love. It was parents who loved their kids so much that they refused, they refused the doctor's orders to hide them away and, and wanted to find a way for them to have a place in the world. And because of, that's what my mother-in-law, when my brother-in-law was diagnosed in Israel in 1970, I think I said before, 69 or 70, um, the doctor said, you, know, you have to put him in an institution and here's the address. And she went and she looked at the place and it was a horrible institution. And she said, I will never do this to my son. I'm going to find another solution. And then she and other parents went out and they created the solutions. And that was love. So it sounds corny. I'm sorry that it does, but I really do think that it's a love story. It, it really is the truth. That's one of the things I was particularly moved by when I started working in this field is just seeing the, the love and the bond that's shared between these families. Um, I think it's really special and it's, it's also well shown Karen um, with you and your son, Mickey. So just wanted to highlight that. But I, I would also add um, that to me that as a parent, um, not as a journalist, um, that really the un, unsung heroes are the educators and are the therapists and are the people who come into this field be, just because they have good souls and 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 it, and it is a hard job and uh, and it's not you know it's not glamorous and it gets even harder as you know the the cute you know kids get older and become adults and the adults can you know be challenging. Um, especially if they haven't, you know, they're, they're, they're more severe and, and the, 
the people who aren't, you know, living it daily because it's their family um, really are heroes in a very different way. And I don't think my son would be where he is today without all of those people. I completely agree 100%. Actually, one of the most surprising things that I saw in the film, I th uh, Ruth Tepper, I think is her name. Oh, uh, Rita Tepper. Tepper. Rita Tepper, yes. Yeah, yeah, Rita Tepper. Yeah, yeah. I was actually surprised to see her in the film because the way you talked about her in the book made me think, well, this is like a living history. But the fact that she was able and alive to be interviewed for the movie, I felt, was very, very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. We There were not many people in the book. The, the movie is a... The, the difference between the book and the movie, the big one, is that the the... The book is really about the past and the movie is about the present and the future. So there were very few people that overlapped in both, but she was one of them. And Donald was another one. All right. So now I will go to uh, my questions. So the first question that I have uh, is based on a thesis of mine that self-advocacy seems to be a very modern thing. Advocates have been hugely involved in issues relating to mental health, bullying, law enforcement, jobs, acceptance, et cetera. What role would you say that self-advocates have played in tackling these issues and how have they impacted the conversation, especially for many who aren't able to speak for themselves? Um, I, I think in, the answer is in a huge way. And, and the interesting thing is that self-advocates, I think you said, are kind of a modern, modern part of the story that um, there were very few self-advocates until sort of quite recently. And, and I think that we agree with that, that, uh, and we write about that in the book, that self-advocacy really is something that started in the late nineties. And I think part of that reason, the reason for that is that um, the diagnosis of autism changed and became broader so that people had the diagnosis um, from the late 90s on who would not have been given it before. And these and, and, the, and the people who were now getting it were much more capable of advocacy and of um, organization and communication, persuasion, you know, a lot of things that might be challenging for people at other parts of the spectrum. And so um, I think I would say the conversation has really changed dramatically. So, you know, in our in our book, we write a lot about the advocacy of parents because parents carried the advocacy chore, journey, uh, or challenge, whatever the word should be, journey for 50 years before self-advocates emerged. And I think it's been a real change in the, in the dynamic um, since then. And of course, you know, the, 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 the most powerful thing that self-advocates can do is speak in the first person about the experience of having autism. We can say, this is, this is who I am. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what my struggles are. Uh, and I can tell you that because it's my experience. So I think that that, that is, is sort of the underlines the, the really huge change that came about as a result of self-advocacy. Yeah, one of the... Um things that I received when I first started working for the foundation that was probably one of the best things I could hear is of a coworker whose son 
is on the spectrum. And she told me at one point that she felt like through me, she could hear everything that her son is trying to say. Now I'm paraphrasing it, but hmm. when I heard that, I felt so deeply impacted by it. And I also felt a lot of pressure, like, gosh, you're, you're looking to me as a vessel. I'm just one out of so many people out there. And I, I grew up with many, many difficulties and struggles, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself this like number one person to hear how, how your son is trying to communicate. I mean, but in some ways I do try to uh, make sense of people around me based on my own personal experiences to try to give the families that I've seen when I would work at the reception desk at the foundation, I would try to, you know, comfort people and comfort families by saying, based on my observations and my own self analysis, that this is exactly what I think is really going on with this person. And I try to give people a sense of uh, levity and a sense of hope that, you know, nothing is lost and that who they're talking to can completely understand them. It's just very, very difficult for them to maybe, you know, respond back. But still, there's a sense that this person, you know, is in the end a human being and to respect that person as a human being. What do you hope the impact of your In a Different Key documentary film would do? That one, um, that one we really have thought about a lot. And we're happy to be very, very strong in what we say about it. Our goal is to make it clear to people who don't know about autism or who think that they don't know about autism or who think that they have no connection to people on the spectrum, for them to understand that they do every day, that people in the spectrum are everywhere. They're you know, at school, they're on the bus, they're at the workplace, they're at the restaurants, they're, when we go back to the movies, they'll be at the movies. And that people on the spectrum deserve as much as anybody else to have a place in the world. And they won't have as easy a time reaching that place in the world unless everybody else makes room and understands their challenges, understands their need for support, um, and in a very fundamental basis, understands that friendship is just friendship, that um, people who are different are not so different that they're that different. And so our, our goal is for the non-autism community to see this movie, to have a, to enjoy it, to have an interesting time. Oh my gosh, it's the first person diagnosed with autism, Donald Triplett. Oh my gosh, look how beautiful his community was to him. Oh my gosh, look at how badly other people have been treated. Why can't more places be like Forrest? Oh, well, maybe I can be part of that. Maybe I can help make Forrest wherever I live. So that's what we really want to do with the movie is to persuade the folks who don't know about autism to understand that they have a big part in the story and that that part in the story is to do the right thing. And that doing the right thing is not very hard. It's just being a friend. It's being a neighbor the way you would with anybody else. And I think that the relationship with Mickey and Matt in the movie was definitely something like that. I mean, one is more severely affected than the other. 
but you know you just in a, in a way you sort of want to be friends with the two of them too so you you want to be involved in people's lives and you want to basically you know be be a friendly person and not a stranger and i just really really appreciated the part with uh, mickey and matt in the movie yeah so let me say something about that if i don't if i may, may so for people who haven't seen the movie yet mickey is karen's son and he's in his late 20s um and uh, he's a lovely just charming sweet intelligent person who has some challenges socially matt is uh, about the same age a little bit older um and matt uh is also just a sweet lovely guy but matt has even more severe challenges in terms of especially in being able to use language and they're friends they just have a real friendship they like to see each other they get something from each other their company pleases each other and it was karen who said i want to show that friendship in the movie because mickey has challenges but he's able to show he's a, he's able to make the, the to, to see the best in matt and matt has challenges and he's able to see the best in mickey and I just want to make the point, Karen said, that if these two guys who are on the spectrum are so good at friendship, then that teaches everybody else to be good at friendship and to be good at friendship with each other and to good at friendship with people on the spectrum and good friendship with everybody. So it's really interesting to me that you picked up their friendship because that's exactly the reason that they're in the movie. Yeah, one of the biggest. Yeah, I really, I really, I really appreciate that. Um, and and Mickey is not, you know, a self advocate. Mickey is not somebody who will, you know, be, you know, ever fully independent in his life. Um, but you know, they were able to figure it out, and it uh, it means a lot to me actually that you you brought that up. Yeah, one of the biggest stereotypes that people may have about individuals on the spectrum is this feeling that, you know, the aloof lifestyle is probably better, uh, no interest in having friends or making friends or that kind of thing. And from my experiences through this long, long journey of life, that's definitely not true. That's not true at all. You know, there are some people who like to be, you know, alone, who desire the life of solitude, but there are many, many people who like to make friends, like to have friends. And, you know, there's really not that much of a difference in many, many people's interests in making friends uh, and with people who are not, you know, on the spectrum and that kind of thing. So that's probably one of the bigger stereotypes that, you know, your, your, your film may end up helping to shatter if more and more people watch it. That's exactly the goal, and it's, and and you use the word shatter to shatter some some wrong ideas. Yeah, that's exactly it. Just just to add on that point a little bit, um, one of the things I found evident in the film is that not only is there something that you know people who aren't directly involved with autism can learn about this condition and how maybe they can uh, do a better job of you know, showing acceptance, but also just that there, there's a lot that we can learn from people with autism. Um, yeah. And I, I think it was, it was highlighted, you know, how there's some, some beautiful things that 
uh, can come from this disorder, uh, this, you know, condition, whether it's a, a friendship between an individual and a community, um, or just the, the people um, in, you know, that individual's life who are maybe touched uh, by this person and, and, you know, changed uh, for the better in some ways. You know, Nate, our, our, our goal with the film was, was really, we, we were really pointing at um, hitting what, what John and I sometimes call is the civilians. It is the people outside of the community that, you know, yes, of course, this would be an important, hopefully be an important uh, film for our community, for my community. Um, but what we, what we really hope to do with this film is to get people who don't get it to get it. And in fact, when we were in, um, we were at the Oxford Film Festival last month um, where our film won um, Best Documentary. I'm not good at, I don't usually toot my own horn, but, <laughs> um, but it was very exciting. And, but the thing that was most exciting about being there was having a live audience, which we'd never had before. And then having people come up to us and say, and they weren't autism people, they weren't part of the autism community, they were film goers. Um, and, and having them come up to us and say, you know, I, I didn't know that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never gonna be the same after seeing this film, like, cause I have an insight that I didn't have before. And it, and, you know, John and I looked at each other and thought, oh, like we did it, at least we did it with this person. Cause that, that was the ultimate goal was getting people who, who didn't know to not just know, but to care. Absolutely. I think you guys nailed it. Well, isn't that a great thing about Autism Awareness Month, you know, generating awareness to people who may not have any like mind on the issue. And then all of a sudden they may come out completely changed people. So that's, that's always a good thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so my last question to you all is this. What would you all say to someone who either has just realized that their offspring may, uh, has autism or that they have autism themselves? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, you just sort of have, you're in for a great journey. It's not gonna be like everything else you know in life. It's gonna be different, but different is, is not, different can be a very good thing. I, I would also say um, there's a community out there that is ready to support you. The larger community we're still working on with the civilians, that's who our movies ended up uh, is aimed at. But there is a community that didn't used to be there that will, you know, that that's on your side already, that um, identifies with you, that will support you, that has resources. Um, that that there's a lot more people on your side than there used to be. You know, I, I'm we, Karen and I have been to the Ellis Foundation, and 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 we've seen what's been built there. Like it's amazing, and those up those sorts of situations and opportunities didn't exist before, but they do now. So. I would say, you know, if you're a parent, the first thing is um, that there's uh, support 
for your kid and their support for you. And if you're uh, an adult uh, diagnosed on the spectrum, there's, you know, there's the internet that that didn't used to be there too. There are people to talk to there. There are allies to find right away. Um, and I, so my suggestion would be go find them because you're going to, it's going to make things a lot smoother as you transition into this, the understanding of, of who you are as a result of this diagnosis. Yeah, I will definitely say that things have changed quite a bit from when I uh, was born in 86 and I grew up and I had the first diagnosis of PDD NOS and then I had uh, Asperger's syndrome in I believe it was like 94 or something like that and I mm -hmm. didn't even know I had any of those diagnoses until I graduated from high school. And I always found myself to be very different, to be a little bit, I guess I would call eccentric and weird. And I just never knew any of those things about myself until I graduated from high school. And at first I thought to myself, well, this is a lot about what I can't do. But then uh, I also heard about things that I can do and I became more accepting of it after, after that happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was growing up, there were very few services, especially to someone like me, who was very different from many of the more severely affected individuals. There were just so few services at the time. So I just had to go in the same route and the same doorways and the same everything as everyone else. And I mean, it, it was just I would go around and I would hug all the other kids in elementary school and some of the kids would be afraid of me because they would look at me and go, who's this touchy feely person? And that was my way of trying to, you know, embrace the world. And I just didn't know that there was any such thing as personal boundaries or that kind of thing. And I don't know what, would it, what it would have been like if I had been uh, sent to a school that was more specialized for someone like me, if that would have made that much of a difference. But I'm just glad that we have more options now than we've ever had before. Did you, would you say that you, um, Merrick, that you, you suffered as a result of that situation? Did it cause pain for you? I would say that... Um, I, during because of those times, because of my bullying, when my arms would droop because of my motor skills, mm -hmm. I actually used to have uh, kids when I was going to elementary school before that time that I was talking about, where all the other kids would sort of laugh at me and mock me, and I would have plenty of bullies and that kind of thing. And I guess I just sort of grew up with the feeling that, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a hard, I, I, I've grown up with a feeling like, well, I'm not that great or I'm not that good. And any kind of emotional, you know, positive reinforcement just doesn't really stick to me as much as negative re reinforcement does. Mm -hmm. And because of those times, I've become pretty risk averse and I've become just a little bit more skeptical about what the meaning of a friend was because I desperately wanted to fit in when I was in elementary school. So I would like mock myself and I would make noises and grunts and moans because other kids around me would want me to do that. 
And I would just think to myself at the time, well, I'm having fun, they're having fun. And I, I just saw it as, you know, here's my way of trying to fit in without really thinking to myself, do you really have to humiliate yourself that much just so you can become friends with these individuals? And so that, that, that's kind of why, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So you keep going. That's, oh. that's completely fine. Uh, you can continue. So that's what the movie's for you know it, it would be in an ideal way for you to get to be the way that you are and were then but not have to have the bullying if the other kids had just understood a little bit about you know who you were and your challenges they for for them to not be frightened of you or or alienated by you or or feel like they needed to pick on you but for them to just your life would have been so different if they just were okay about it and yeah. And its impact on you, and so that's that's what the movie's for is is for, but adults need that lesson too, and that's what the movie's for because y- you shouldn't have to go through that just because of however our all our all of our brains are wired in different ways, but it, that should not be a reason for you to be picked on and bullied, and that's what the movie is about is to get that across to the larger population because I think people. The people who were good to you and and friends to you, if there were any, I think today, if they heard you talk about them, they would be really proud that they were who they were. And the idea is for everybody to kind of be that way. That's that's what we wanted. Do you agree with that, Karen? Like, that's what we're trying to get done here? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I always tell people who were friendly to me back in school, I always say, I remember you completely because you were nice to me. There are even people who, when I, when my symptoms were less and less, they would even make fun of my voice. So it, and I was just basically treating it all as like some harmless little thing. But I think that that just makes it harder for me to identify who I would consider a true friend versus who I would consider an acquaintance and that kind of thing. And it just leaves one with a very skeptical, very cynical view of the world and of how we socially communicate with each other. And I really wish I didn't have that kind of cynicism and skepticism. It's hard not to. Yeah. Aaron and John, I don't know if you mentioned this as, you know, something you, you might say to, someone who um, has just received a diagnosis or they've had a family member receive a diagnosis, but um, something that I think was evident in your work also is that there are now, you know, we have Dr. Temple Grandin, we have Dr. Vernon Smith. There are these, you know, people with autism who have found great success in their work and, you know, I, I would look at Merrick as a role model as well, but, but there are these, these people who are able to, you know, make these great contributions. And I don't know that we had, you know, that we necessarily had role models in that way, um, you know, in previous generations. So I, I I thought that was really cool also. That's true. Although, although I would, I would say Nate, like, not everybody on the spectrum, just like not everybody off the spectrum is going to be a genius or successful. And, and so the, 
the sort of array of people on both these zones on and off the spectrum, so there are going to be some some geniuses in both worlds. Um, and, um, and 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 actually, uh, Karen and I have spent time with uh, Dr. Grandin, and we're big fans of hers. And she did a lot to um, to to help destigmatize autism. But we also want to you know make it clear that everybody's so different on the spectrum that. We, we, we would never want to say, okay, that's what's in store for everybody. You know what I mean? It's, it's, of course. Um, yeah. 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 I think that one of the uh, big things that I do agree with in the movie and the book is that Rain Man was probably a very good uh, insight kind of uh, film, but it just, it led a little bit to this idea that people with autism have all these great hidden talents and are all savants and all this stuff. And that's, that's not completely true. You know, only 10%, I believe, of individuals with autism have savant syndrome. That's, that's, uh, it's not, it's not like, you know, this huge, huge number. But, you know, if we can see the humanity in everyone, no matter how they are, whether they're like savants or not, or whatever, it's just, it's, it's actually what I kind of felt also from the book film is that, yes, there are people all over the place, you know, not everyone's a genius, not everyone's, you know, the biggest brain in the world. And if we can sort of walk away a little bit from that, we may actually get a better sense of the humanity within people on the spectrum and within ourselves. Well, that's really well said. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't consider myself a genius at all. So, you know, I just, I consider myself a person in the world. Just like anyone else in the way. That's the idea. Yeah. All right. So it, it's been really, really good uh, speaking to you all. I'm sure that Nate, uh, Dr. Shinnok agrees. Thank you so much, John and Sharon. It's been a pleasure. I have to tell you something that we've done a lot of interviews, um, Karen and I, since our book came out five years ago. This might've been the best one. It was the most interesting one, certainly for me. So I wanna thank you and, and the Ells Foundation and both of you for, for the, t the time you spent thinking about what to talk about and for reading the book and looking at the movie. It's, it's really, this has been a very special interview. Well, your book is a very special, sorry. You got, you know, this conversation was just really, really the real, the real deal. So mm -hmm. thank you. Well, I have to say that uh, your book is extremely special to me and your movie is also extremely special to me. I mean, you know, all that research and all those personalities and all the history in that book was just, it was mind blowing. I couldn't find any book out there that was probably like that one. And I am so appreciative that you all took the time to write it. Well, we appreciate that because it took, it took a lot of time to write it. It took a long, long time. So we're really pleased that it meant that much to you. So thank you for that. Yeah. So thank I guess you. if you, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say thank you so much. It's, it's great work you guys have done. Thank you. Well, thanks for having us. And uh, 
I'm sure we'll meet again. Yeah. 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 Oh, by the way, if people want to know where the, how to, about the movie, they can go to the website in a different key, the movie.com. Well, that's also why our show notes will uh, be there when we uh, end up uh, uploading this to the website, which we will certainly send you all a link. Great. Thank and you. the show notes will include links and resources and all the different websites that have been mentioned in the broadcast today. So we will definitely include everything, like a place where to get the book, where to watch the movie, anything. You know, just anything that you all would want us to display, we will do it. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Have Thanks our work. So all right. Take care. Thank you. Be well. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our interview. We hope you tune in next month in May for another excellent episode. As usual, for... I wish that I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I fly into the air so high Oh, like a butterfly Moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high like a butterfly, I fly into the air so high. Oh, like a butterfly, like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours, you can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind. In the future, your eyes will light up to think that I was once a poor caterpillar. Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly So high Oh, like a butterfly I fly into the air So high Oh, like a butterfly
so high. 